Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining the inaugural Keller & Heckman at Cardinal Camrisk Tosca 3030 webinar. Uh, very excited to be doing this today. We have about 300 attendees, attendees forgive me, so uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, of interest to many, many people. As the name suggests, these seminars will be 30-minute webinars hosted about every 30 days, usually at 1 p.m. Eastern, the second Wednesday of each month. Today, I will be joined by Jim Keenan at Cardno, and we will be discussing, uh, discussing, <laughs> discussing Tosca PMN review issues arising from uh, enactment of the Tosca reform legislation back in January. So, uh, please don't forget to dial in, although I guess if you haven't dialed in, you wouldn't hear me say this, but please do dial in uh, so you can hear and follow us uh, along on the screen as well. So here is my bio, complete with baggy eyes and a bad hair day, uh, and here is uh, Jim's bio. We won't uh, read these for you, but you can look at them at your uh, at your convenience, I guess. Um, so here's what we're going to try to cover today. Uh, as I think many of us know, initially there was a lot of focus, and certainly the focus of Tosca reform was on Section 6 and existing chemicals and corrosion-proof fittings and all that, but there's been a lot of activity and, and, in fact, some controversy under Section 5 in terms of the standards that are being used, the review process, and the data needed to commence a new chemical. So that's what we're going to focus on here today in the next 30 minutes or so. So let's dive right in. Um, Overall, the you know unlike Section Six, which was overhauled by Tosca reform, the Section Five process is, is pretty similar uh, in, in many respects. You still need to submit a pre-manufacture notice or a significant new use notice at least 90 days before you commence a new substance, which, as we know, is a substance that's not on the inventory or a uh, or for a significant new use as defined in a SNR. Uh, unlike old Tosca, where if EPA took no action during the review period, basically a chemical was approved for use, EPA now must make an affirmative determination under Section 5A3, A, B, or C for the chemical. And Jim's going to cover some of these things, but these determinations need to be made uh, based on the conditions of use uh, uh, of the substance. There can be basically no cost-benefit analysis, as the second bullet indicates. Uh, EPA must consider potentially exposed susceptible subpopulations that Jim will talk about as well. Uh, and I won't focus on this last bullet, but uh, EPA uh, in some cases may need to consult with OSHA, although we think that will be an infrequent occurrence. So what are these three determinations that we need to make? Let's work these backwards. Okay, let's go from basically best to worst. So, so the C, Charlie determination, the last one, is where EPA determines that a substance is not likely to present an unreasonable risk. And I guess I should point out that the, the overall unreasonable risk standard uh, has been retained from, uh, from I guess, old Tosca. Uh, really, the B is the most interesting, the, the B determination, uh, right in the middle here. And as you can see, it's got three parts to it, you know, one, two, and three. Uh, let's go through these. So basically, these can be well. These can be summarized as follows. Basically, the first bullet is an insufficient information finding. In other words, as we'll see, EPA can hang you up and take action simply if it lacks sufficient information. The second is the old risk-based finding, where EPA looks at the PMN uh, or the SNN and determines that a risk is presented. And the third is basically the exposure-based finding, with it, which I think many of us uh, are familiar with under Tosca. Uh, having worked with it for many, many years. Um, I have that or in green and underlined because 
uh, back in the day, before this was amended, that used to be an and. And the change in that one word from and to or uh, really impacts uh, how easy it's going to be for EPA to regulate new chemicals under TSCA. Okay, what can EPA do if they make one of these three? Oh, I guess so. Let me see. Let me go back, see if I can go back. Yeah, and I forgot. And the worst determination EPA can make is the A determination, where EPA affirmatively concludes that a substance essentially will present an unreasonable risk. But I think in many cases, most of the determinations we will be seeing will be either B-boy or C-Charlie determinations. So what can EPA do? Uh, uh, if, if it makes one of these three determinations. Let's start, let's, let's go backwards again. Let's start with C. Charlie, or in reverse here. This is the good that, where the substance is not likely to present an unreasonable risk. If EPA makes this finding, then you can commence non-exempt commercial manufacturer import, and in fact, you can do that even before the review period ends. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, a big improvement from, from old TSCA and that you don't have to wait the full 90 days. If EPA makes this determination, uh, you can go ahead and commence manufacturer import. Uh, the second, again, uh, in the middle here, the B determination that we talked about, uh, if this happens, we're in the, uh, you know, basically in Section 5B land where EPA has got to use Section 5E of TSCA and is required to issue uh, a final Section 5E order. Let's see what I'm going to talk about timing. Uh, I guess we can do that here. Uh, and in fact, um, and this will get into some issues I'll talk about in a few more slides about review period timing issues, but basically EPA has to issue this 5E order um, no more than, uh, uh, I'm sorry, no less than 45 days before the end of the review period, okay? And as you probably know, 5E orders are, are, are typically lengthy contracts between PMN submitters and EPA where EPA specifies the conditions under which the PMN substance can be manufactured. And they can have water release restrictions, trigger testing requirements, uh, personal protective uh, equipment uh, requirements, and, and basically you know, all sorts of restrictions on the manufacture, import, processing, distribution, and use of a chemical. If EPA makes the, uh, I guess, uh, the worst, I guess, from industry's perspective, determination, the A determination, uh, then you're within basically Section 5F of TSCA. And if that happens, EPA is required to issue a 5F order, which basically is the same as the 5E order. And again, that has to be done uh, at least 45 days before the end of the review period uh, or a proposed Section 6A rule. But this is kind of an interesting bird in that it basically becomes effective. It's immediately effective upon publication in the Federal Register. So this is a little bit more serious. We didn't see too much activity under Section 5F under old TSCA, and we continue to believe that most of the regulation we will see under TSCA will be under Section um, uh, 5A3B-Boy uh, here and not so much A. So, uh, Jim, would you like to talk to us about these new risk assessments that are going to take place under this new framework? Sure, Tom. Uh, thanks for throwing it over to me. I am going to first let's get the slide up. Go through um, a basic risk assessment process to make sure everybody we're all on the same page. Uh, risk assessment is a straightforward concept, but it become very complicated pretty quickly. The first step is hazard ID. This is simply to determine if a substance poses a risk under any circumstances. Um, a rock can have a hazard associated, but it's really not a risk until someone picks it up and they're going to throw it at you. So, um, Mike, everybody's favorite poison is alcohol. Um, 
chronic exposure could cause liver disease. Acute exposure can cause neurological effects, um, unconsciousness. That's a hazard assessment. It has nothing to do with exposure or anything else. It's just whether the chemical can cause a hazard. Then you get to dose response. Now, dose response, um, you learn about in your first day of toxicology class. Um, you learn dose makes the poison. Um, everything's toxic, even water. Um, on the flip side, side of that, and something I always like to mention, is that everything is safe at some level. Um, so if you increase the dose, you increase the effects. And back to our alcohol example, at one beer, really, maybe nothing, uh, my wife might uh, talk a little louder. Um, at four beers, maybe dizzy, lightheaded, I'll probably talking a little bit louder. Um, you know, 10 beers later, um, you're probably passed out. That's dose response. Just increasing the dose increases the effects. Then you have exposure assessment. Exposure assessment is the magnitude, frequency, or duration of exposure. So in our little alcohol um, conversation here, um, the magnitude would be a 12-ounce beer. The frequency would be every 20 minutes. The duration would be four hours, and that would be – so the exposure would be 12 beers or 144 ounces over four hours. Now, the final step is risk, risk characterization, and that's when you bring all of these three together. Now, we know the hazard. We know the dose that what bad things ha happens, and we know that this particular person had 12 beers. So as a risk assessor, I can say that the risk of this person passing out is pretty high, and that is a risk assessment. As simple as that is. Um, next slide. So now we're going to flip over to what's new about Tosca risk assessments. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is that EPA can now regulate potential uses that are not addressed in the PMN. And these are determined by the EPA, not you. Um, so it's going to become very important to know all potential waste streams of your product. Um, this is going to be across the industry, across consumers, downstream users. It's going to be very important to know the risk, risk um, management processes across the industry, um, including downstream users. You really have to keep all of this in mind because it's not going to be the EPA making the, these decisions. So. Another big aspect that has changed is that they're going to focus and uh, prioritize PBTs. A PBT is simply a persistent biocumulative toxic. Um, people, people on this call have probably come across those before. Um, you can easily test if your chemical might be one by using some um, SAR models that structure activity relationship models um, that are available online. Um, there's actual laboratory tests that the EPA um, has methods for and that you can do yourselves to determine if you think that you might be, have a PBT on your hands. Um, a third thing is that EPA has more power to require testing. Um, this is just, I mean, there's more, I could get into more specific things on that, but we'll probably dive, take a much deeper dive on that in, in future webinars. Um, the EPA can assess aggregate or sentinel risk. This, I think, is a very 
big difference. Um, historically, the EPA has assessed sentinel exposures, and that, if anybody on the phone has ever lived in the circular wor world, would be the reasonably maximally exposed person. Um, so you just really focus on one uh, one type of person using the most important route. Um, so it's going to be the person that's exposed them the most, and you're going to assume that if everything's okay for them, then everything's okay for everybody else. But when you talk about aggregate exposure, it's actually much more complicated. Um, that's You're still dealing with one chemical, but you're dealing with multiple pathways. So you're dealing with food, drinking water, residential uses. It could be through air, um, groundwater, um, even just you know, inhalation during showering. I mean, there's so many different pathways that could be including, included. Um, and this is going to include multiple routes of exposure. Now, routes of exposure specifically are ingestion, inhalation, and dermal. Historically, you might only have had to focus on the inhalation exposure because the other two didn't really matter that much. But in this case, you actually have to deal with them and add up all of those exposures, so they're going to have a higher exposure under an aggregate, uh, aggregate <clears throat> exposure assessment. Um, and finally, and I think this is the most important thing that is a change, is that it requires the EPA to consider susceptible subpopulations. Uh, Tom mentioned that a little earlier. But I'm going to dig deeper into the sub um, susceptible subpopulations in the next slide. So this is actually from the January 7th, 2016 draft of the uh, new USC EPA risk assessment guidance. And I think it gives a really good view of how the EPA is thinking about susceptible subpopulations. And you can probably look, tell by just looking at it that it's really complicated. Um, there's... I mean, historically, if you've been doing risk assessments, you've always been used to, you know, focusing on um, pregnant women or infants or the elderly or children or pika children that eat a lot of dirt. Um, those are pretty classic um, susceptible populations. But here you'll see um, you'll see socioeconomic status. I mean, these are more nuanced. Um, variables, genetic differences, cultural lifestyle diet. I mean, that can mean that they might focus an exposure assessment on a Native American subsistence fisherman, and that person will have, you know, a much greater exposure to fish and different parts of fish from one, one area. Um, it makes the risk assessment process a lot more complicated and actually gives the EPA a lot more leeway in what they can do and where they can focus. I think the bottom line in here is that it's going to be more important than ever to understand the EPA thought process and, and to really keep up to date on the changes. And, you know, signing into this webinar will help because we're doing that too. Um, and Tom, I think Tom right now is going to catch you up on a little bit about what's happening, what has been happening at the EPA recently. Yes, thanks, Jim. 
All right, we covered a lot of the kind of the, the background stuff and some of the details. Now let's kind of kind of fast forward right up to the present. Uh, you may recall, Jesus, seems as you get older, time goes faster and faster, doesn't it? Uh, June twenty second is when President Obama signed HR twenty five seventy six, and so that's when Tosca, new Tosca, became immediately effective on that date. There really weren't any transitional provisions, so. Tosca hit, and uh, among the first things that happened is that EPA reset all of the uh, PMN review periods that were pending at that time. And as you know, review period is you know typically 90 days, but as we'll discuss in a second, um, sometimes they get much longer than that. And so, you know, if you took a snapshot. Uh, at June 22nd, EPA had 334 PMNs under review, and EPA basically took all those review periods, regardless of when they started. And in fact, I had a client who I think was a day or two uh, from having the, the review period uh, expire, and then they got reset back to 90 days. So basically, we have 334 PMNs um, that you know basically have a uh, effectively a filing date of, of June 22nd, uh, 2016. Since that time, what has that been, about four months or so? Yeah, about four months or so. EPA has approved a handful of these PMNs, uh, 24 of them to be precise, uh, but nine of these were uh, microbial or MCANs. They're like PMNs, but they're for, essentially for microorganisms. Um, and so uh, so only of those three, 334, less than 10% have been cleared by EPA. Uh, when you look through them, and uh, I, actually I have been looking at some of the questions came in, and one of the questions was, you know, basically, I'll paraphrase. How do you know when EPA has made one of these determinations? If you go to their website, I think I had the link in one of my earlier slides, uh, you can basically see if a given PMN, uh, basically what EPA's determination has been for that PMN. And if you look through these uh, determinations for these 24 chemicals, you'll see you know, the majority of them are polymers. A few of them look to me to be, you know, quasi-foods, if you will. Uh, but they're pretty, uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm not a toxicologist, but when you look at the structure, uh, it's pretty easy to see that these appear to be uh, low-risk, low-hazard substances. So EPA has approved a handful of these. I think here's here's the important one right here in the middle of the slide. And so, obviously, with all these PMN review periods reset as of June 22nd, 90 days later becomes a big time, right, because all these uh, – this big block of this big batch of PMNs comes due. So in mid-September, our phone started ringing off the hook at Keller & Heckman with clients saying, hey, EPA called me or emailed me or talked to me, and they want one of two things. Uh, they either want a 60-day suspension of the review period – uh, uh, which they politely requested, or if the suspension was not granted, EPA threatened to uh, use its Section 5C Charlie authority to extend the review period uh, for a certain time. So these are two different concepts, suspensions and extensions. Suspensions are, are regulatory, they're voluntary. You can see them at 720.75 B-Boy. And basically, as you folks may know, if you've got a PMN under review, you can work with EPA and suspend uh, the PMN basically, uh, you know, indefinitely um, uh, while you work out your concerns with EPA. Section 5C, on the other hand, C. Charlie is much more infrequently used, and it's right in the statute, as its you know, name suggests. And this is where EPA can extend the review period by up to an additional 90 days, and they can do that in increments. They typically don't like to do that, and they would much rather get, quote-unquote, voluntary suspensions of the review period. 
uh, I think I was I was quoted in BNA or somebody recently uh, that that you know as a result of the continued viability of 720.75b and 5c, uh, unfortunately the days of protracted PMN review periods are not over. Right, and so you know we certainly have had PMNs under review uh, for many years. Uh, sometimes that's because you know interest uh, increases and decreases over time with respect to the substance and commercial concerns. Um, but there is no basically 90 days or out or 180 days or out unless you refuse to give a suspension, uh, and then EPA is only left with 90 days plus another 90 max. Okay, and so why EPA did that? Uh, basically wanted extra time is because they went back and basically looked at all of these PMNs with their new, uh, you know, new calibrated glasses on based on the factors that Jim just described. And so if you look at the first sub-bullet here out of the middle, so we even had cases where a PMN was dropped from EPA review prior to June 22nd. EPA looked at it with its new glasses, and not only did they, you know, revive it, but now uh, uh, is seeking toxicity data on the substance. That's a dramatic turnaround, right, from being able to commercialize the substance basically without restriction to entering into a, a 5E consent order um, with tox data. Frequently, EPA had been requesting a 90-day uh, toxicity study, although we understand that some of that was basically uh, a little bit of overcautiousness on EPA's uh, point uh, on EPA's uh, part early here in the implementation of new TOSCA. So we suspect EPA will will see you know fewer requests for 90-day studies uh, than we did a few weeks ago. Just uh, an hour or two before this call, let me see here. I received my first concern letter from a client. Right, a concern letter or an action letter, as they're sometimes called, are letters you get from EPA when you submit a PMN and EPA's got concerns, hence the name. And they describe the concerns uh, in some specificity or, or with some specificity, and then they give you a number of options. Right, You can withdraw your PMN if, if, if what EPA is suggesting is too onerous. You can submit upfront data to EPA, and then probably the two most important uh, options are you can enter into an expedited, non-negotiated Section 5e order, take it or leave it, or, and this option was, I think, less frequently, explicitly included in the past, uh, what they call option two is basically negotiate a Section 5e order with EPA after giving them at least a 90-day suspension of the review period. So that's a long way of saying that the action letters and concern letters that we've seen for many of us have seen for the last 30 years under Tosca uh, look uh, very, very similar to, to what they did in the past. So again, you file a PMN, EPA's got concerns, uh, and you have a number of options. And, and in practice, I think the most common um, response to an action letter is what I just described is option two, where you work with EPA and try to negotiate uh, a Section 5e order, uh, hence the name Section 5e consent order, which is the way 5e orders have historically been issued. Um, and we don't have too much time today to go into all the details, but you typically request from EPA, you know, their initial review engineering reports and the SAT reports and the reports that they prepared when they reviewed the PMN so that you can see the bases for EPA's concern. So we have all sorts of clients who are kind of right in the middle of uh, of, of what I described here in the middle of this slide. 
A couple other things we've seen, uh, you know, if you look at the low volume exemption or LVE at 40 CFR 723.50, you don't see a per se prohibition on PBTs, uh, but basically uh, what we've seen EPA do is basically um, essentially across the board uh, deny LVEs for PB, uh, PBT chemicals. Uh, we've also seen, although this started a little bit before TOSCA reform, is EPA issuing low-volume exemptions, uh, but with time limitations. For example, an LVE that's only good for uh, uh, a year or so. Um, so with that, uh, Jim, given all these issues, what, what should a PMN submitter do to, to get through this process? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, I know you were talking about the um, – the PMMs that have been approved before, and I actually went through that to see how transparent the EPA reports were and to see if I could even just suss out what kind of um, – what computational model they were using to make their determinations, and really there wasn't anything. They were very – they were not – they were not transparent, so so it was very hard to try to figure out their approach. Um, but that it is what it is at this point. So um, there are some things that you can and should do um, now with this new TOSCA. Um, of course, the first thing, uh, if you're preparing a PMN, is to, uh, you know, give Tom or I a call, and we can help you. But um, the bottom line, and I think the message that I want you to have from this is that you want to help the EPA evaluate your chemicals. Um, some quick recommendations for that is to know the process that the EPA is going to use. Um, what you're going to want to do and what you can do is, is anticipate what the, what the EPA will do. You can perform your own conservative risk assessments. Um, what you can do with that information is identify the data gaps before submission, um, because what you want, the bottom line is what you want, and, and, and maybe it isn't how some people have thought in, in the past, is that you want the EPA to perform a rigorous risk assessment. Um, you want to provide the EPA with enough information to be able to do that. And the reason what you want that is that the alternative is that the EPA, if you leave it into the EPA hands, they're going to perform a very conservative risk assessment. It's going to have conservative assumptions. It's it's designed to overestimate, um, and it can pop out exposures or risks that aren't even plausible. Um, and 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 you might be able to head that off by a little planning before um, before you submit um, data that you can provide that would help. Um, any monitoring data, biomonitoring data. Um, I think some things that would help would be industry standard or even specific risk management strategies, both upstream and downstream if you know them. Um, even data from simple laboratory tests can make a large difference when it comes to how these um, EPA computational models that they'll be using are going to um, calculate a risk. Um, because they're going to use, if they don't know the persistence in the environment, they're going to assume that it's very large. Um, and finally, 
and this is this is kind of the last thing that we'll be touching on today, is um, is to provide detailed information on read across chemicals. Um, I think that's very important now, especially for a new chemical that there isn't too much information on. Make sure you do that SAR analysis and find a chemical that's similar and if that has a lot of information and provide that. And I think Tom and I have talked a lot about this, and I, I believe Tom has some specific um, thoughts on that also. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts, too. I'm also watching a couple of questions come in on chat, and I'll kind of maybe address them in, in the context of, of what we're saying here. Um, and, and, yes, indeed, I think, you know, EPA, you know, clearly um, had manpower limitations or staffing limitations before task reform, and needless to say, they're extremely busy now. So I think anything you can do, maybe this is obvious, but anything you can do to make EPA's job easier, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, provide, you know, uh, octanol water data or uh, actually generated data or, uh, you know, provide a, a, a candidate for a read-across chemical, um, uh, I think that really helps. And who's getting who? When you don't provide actual data, uh, it makes EPA go to these default assumptions, and I think that in itself takes time. So. Um, you know, again, I think preparing a, what I call a tightly prepared uh, PMN, I think, is, is, is at the risk of saying the obvious, more important now uh, than ever. Um, just a couple uh, things here. I did mention in one of the earlier slides that EPA, let's see if I can back up here, that EPA, um, among the things that's been happening recently, there we go. Right here, if you look to about two-thirds away, proposing to regulate polymer-exempt substances. What do I, what I mean by that is that the polymer exemption, Right, which is you may know as kind of a, a shortcut, if you will, where you don't have to file a PMN for certain qualifying polymers. Uh, that, at least for now, is alive and well. Uh, but we've been aware of cases where, where a substance that, that could have been manufactured or imported under the polymer exemption uh, was put through the PMN process, and EPA is proposing to regulate that substance. So I think that really highlights, again, the different standard uh, for PMNs that we have now after TOSC reform. I saw an earlier question about cosmetics. Uh, one of the things, although we have some of these new definitions that Jim and I have discussed about potentially susceptible subpopulation and conditions of use, um, all the existing definitions, and I think there were 11 of them, um, uh, were unchanged by TOSCA forms. The definition of chemical substance is the same, and that set forth TOSCA's jurisdiction, which excludes chemicals that are manufactured or imported solely for use as foods, drugs, cosmetics, or medical devices as defined under the FDC um, Act. So I think we're getting close to the end of time here. So um, uh, if you have any other questions, feel free to email uh, Jim or I. And again, we uh, apologize. We have a lot to cover, and we're trying to keep these to 30 minutes. Um, so uh, that's it for today. Um, note that these programs are available as a podcast. So you can take them on the go with you wherever you may wish to, uh, you know, have fun with Tosca. Uh, this program is free, as you know, but we ask that if you receive an email invite to a next program, you pass it along to others uh, in your company and other companies who you think uh, also might be interested. Uh, as we can see here, the next Tosca 3030 is on the 9th, and we are also having a program in Houston uh, somewhere in the middle of that month. Uh, uh, two and a half days on all you ever want to know about Tosca. So we'll provide details on that later. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone and hope you have a wonderful day.